Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de sangamatasa taura ye sorawantaba munjantu satang. So this afternoon, it's the one pra, the Upasala day, and uh, I've been asked to give a Dharma reflection. So uh, the words that we use in English, translated, from you know, from the Pali language or Thai language into English in this tradition. In most religions, in fact, all religions talk about love. And so, this word in English is a word that can mean all kinds of things, because there's you know, it can mean just you like something very much or at the moment you you desire somebody very much or it can mean describe sexual desire or preference for foods or situations or ultimately in the religious sense the spiritual sense it means it's like metta and upeka together or in Christian terms, they talk about unconditional love. <clears throat> the love that we feel with desire, liking some something or somebody, is, uh, is based on delusion. So that, you know, like and dislike are a pair. And so sometimes you like somebody, you say you love them or you hate them or dislike them. It changes according to conditions. You know, you can't like something all the time. Uh, it changes when the conditions change, then we dislike what we liked before. <clears throat> we fall in love with somebody and then the conditions change and we fall out of love, we hate them, angry with them. And so these are the conditions of mental states that we create around our reactions to uh, situations, conditions in the world that we experience through the senses. But unconditioned love, metta, means that it doesn't mean liking. It doesn't mean that you you like a, something that you don't like, but it's, uh, 
it is a non-critical acceptance of the way things are, whether the uh, condition might be likable or unlikable, lovable or unlovable. So metta is the, is the first Brahma Vihara, and that, and then we we practice metta bhavana. We we have all kinds of spreading metta throughout the universe, and uh, metta is translated as love, unconditioned love, which is really ultimate reality. Metta and upeka these. And put in the context of Brahma Viharas, also in Bharamitas or accumulated virtues. Upeka is oftentimes translated as indifference. So I remember when years ago, when I was a samanera, I asked a monk in Thailand about the, what upeka really meant, and he said he translated it into indifference, which is not a very good translation because indifference is like not caring or just ignoring or uh, brushing aside something you're indifferent to, you don't, you're not interested in or care about in any way. But upeka or equanimity is a much preferable English translation. Equanimity or equality when we begin to see in terms of Dhamma, of the way things are, all conditions are equal because they share the three characteristics. All phenomena, all conditions are, you know, they're equal in the, in the sense that they arise and cease. All conditions are impermanent. All conditions are unsatisfying, unsatisfactory, all conditions are not personal, not a real permanent self, not a soul, not to some real internal individual essence of each being. Because they, these are all divisive sankharas, and so the equality that they share is in the characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta. So whether it's an angel, a devada, or a devil, Mara, or, you know, whatever terms you want to use from the most beautiful, best, highest, to the lowest, meanest, horrible hell realm, all conditioned phenomena is equal in the sense that they, they arise and sees they're empty, they're not, per, they're not a real person, they're not a soul, not the real nature of any individual. They arise and cease in our minds according to conditions. So when, you know, when we're praised, when we get acknowledged or we're successful, you know, then we feel a certain joy, happiness, uh, that is not equanimous. It's not uh, not indifferent, but it's it arises that joy of being praised and appreciated, loved and respected is like this. And when the opposite happens, when you're despised, rejected, criticized, 
diminished in all sorts of ways that societies can can think and operate, then that kind of anger, resentment, uh, hatred, uh, those are conditions that arise and cease according to conditions. So in metta, it's like, it's, it's uh, translated usually as loving kindness. It's, it's uh, conditions are the way they are. They can't, you can't just choose conditions and, and hold on to what you like and discard and reject what you don't like. But what you can do is be aware of this reality. All conditions are impermanent and not self. And that is metta, where you're allowing conditions to, to be what they are without wanting to get rid of them or hold on to them in any way whatsoever. So metta isn't about desire. It's not like bhavadana. We're not trying, you know, to be, be people with a lot of metta you know, trying to become someone that's full of metta, uh, because that's still, you know, coming from the sense of I'm, I've got to conquer my aversion and, and ignorance and become uh, a monk or a nun with, with metta for all sentient beings. That's an ideal. And you can create a, an ideal out of that, of being able to be an individual, person, an individual monk or an individual nun that is just filled with metta all the time, filled with loving kindness for all sentient beings. But that, that's a, an ideal that we create in the mind. So how many reflections have I offered over the past few months just on <coughs> the, <coughs> the limitation of ideals? Not that there's anything wrong with ideals. They are ideal. They're the best. But also, the best has its opposite as the, as the you know, in the English word, the worst. So, where metta doesn't have an opposite. It's not about, uh, you know, not having metta or having metta, metta is, is natural. It's dhamma, it's reality. And it's what we begin to awaken to when we, when we let go of desire. So you can't, you know, as much as we would like to become an ideal person, an ideal samana, an ideal citizen, an ideal bhikkhu, an ideal siladhara, as much as that operates in our, uh, an ideal that we grasp, then it's going to be disappointing because you're still operating from the personal, from the self-view, from the atta, the, the self-view of trying to become something that you imagine uh, at its very best. 
And we can, at moments, feel metta or unconditional love for all sentient beings in moments of silence and success and, and uh, acceptance when everything is pleasant and, and wonderful for us. That's a peak moment because conditions do have their peak moments. They arise, they reach a peak, and then they decrease, they disappear, they, they disappear into what? Where, where do conditions arise from and where do they cease? What do they cease into? You know, ask yourself this question, where, where does hatred come from? You know, where does it, is it some kind of energy in the universe we imagine, some kind of evil force, the axis of evil, the devil operating in society to delude us and, and corrupt us with evil thoughts and evil actions? You know, that's another image we create of some evil force in society that we've got to be constantly on the, on the lookout for to, for, to uh, try to uh, avoid or, or destroy in some way or another. So all this is, you know, the term conceptual proliferation, this way we proliferate with our thoughts and our ideas and our views. So we can imagine anything, an evil force that's going to overtake the whole, un the whole planetary system. Science fiction oftentimes has these projections of the future as taken over by, by for, you know, unseen forces of evil in, in the universe. And, and these are images, imagine, imaginations made up by human beings and uh, we can grasp these images and feel very threatened and become quite paranoid, quite suspicious of every, everything around us. Just like the COVID pandemic, you know, when we think of, you know, going outside the monastery or who, who comes in the monastery might be infected with COVID-19 and you go outside the monastery, you might contact some kind of evil disease and bring it back into the community. So when we dwell on these kind of thoughts, not that these are anything wrong with this, but when we live in a realm of our own conceptions and beliefs, then it can change into fear and paranoia, resentment, and where we, we feel that we're totally incapable of, of loving kindness or metta. So how many of you have failed, feel you failed in terms of metta as an ideal? <clears throat> you know, because on a personal level, it, it changes according to conditions. So in Pali, you have this word, ittabhajyata, which means things are dependent on conditions. All conditions arise and cease from the unconditioned. The conditions change, but the unconditioned doesn't change. It's immutable, perfect, dhamma. 
you can see it as unconditioned love. We take our refuge in, not in, in some idealized view of just liking all conditions equally as a self, as an individual uh, personality, because we can't do that, that's impossible. But we can take refuge in Dhamma, and Dhamma in this sense, this word, this Pali word, is also meaning ultimate reality, perfection, wholeness, completeness, that accepts everything, you know, because in, within uh, this experience of a human birth, we have to live with these changing conditions of our physical bodies, our emotional habits, our cultural biases, our political views, our, our gender biases, our wishes, our fears, hopes and fears and desires change according to other conditions. So when we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, Like this morning, Ajahn Emeril was giving the Anagarikas the Eight Precepts. And I always like to listen to Bhutang Sarnangachami, Dhammang Sarnangachami, Sankang Sarnangachami, because that to me is a very, is just a beautiful thing to, to say and to, to uh, reflect on. Is, you know, is it just a ceremonial part of this Thai tradition, you know, is it, is it just an empty phenomenon that, that, that we just repeat over and over according to Uposita days and people requesting precepts and refuges. And we can just see it in terms of traditional form, which it is, it is a traditional form. But in what I'm suggesting and encouraging is a real investigation of what Buddha Dhamma Sangha really is in a practical sense. You know, is it just words that we repeat or is it ideas or ideals that we believe in or we, we feel we should believe in or grasp? Or like Bhutto, the, the, the mantra form of Buddha's name, what is Buddha here and now? You know, if this is timeless, if this is Dhamma here and now, apparent here and now, timeless, what is Buddha in relationship to Dhamma? Why do you take refuge in Buddha first and then Dhamma and then Sangha? So in, in this reflection, Buddha is mindfulness. Conscious awareness here and now. This is what you take refuge in. Because it is a refuge. It's perfect here and now. It doesn't change. It's not dependent upon conditions of being liked or disliked, praised or criticized. Because just notice in your own life, when you're praised, you know what you're feeling. You like that. Liking is like this when you're criticized and admonished <clears throat> or rejected or despised, you feel like this. That's awareness, you know, that's consciousness aware. 
of feeling according to the conditions that you're experiencing in the moment. But the ignorant, what we call ignorance or avicca, is lacking in wisdom. So mindfulness isn't something you, you, you concentrate on or try to perfect in some kind of personal achievement. Trying to become more mindful or completely mindful is an ideal you might hold to or like. But consciousness is here and now all the time. You know, it's not something that depends on being praised or rejected or concentrating on on objects or conditions that you're particularly involved in at the time. But the difference with the unenlightened individual is that they're still conscious and aware, but they have ignorance to interpret experience through through the self-view, through sakya ditti, stila bhattabharamasa vichikita. So everything becomes personal and liking or approving or disapproving, disliking, because that's the way the, the human mind operates. The, just the languages that we use, that we think in, that we hold to are based on this dualistic system. You know, if you think of heaven, hell, angels, devils, God, Satan, even the, the English word God has to have an opposite in Christian terms of Satan, some kind of devil. <clears throat> God is good, Satan is bad. This is, these are dualistic terms. If you have best, you've got to have worst. Right and wrong, good and bad. But what does isn't is prior to thinking or interpreting or reacting to experience is awareness. So the other day I gave a reflection on the difference between reaction and response. You know, reactions are like pushing the button. Somebody criticizes you and you get very angry or defensive. That's a reaction. One can understand that. You know, nobody, not, we don't like to be criticized. Uh, you know, we like, sometimes we're criticized justly, fairly, sometimes it's totally on wrong, just malice and aversion. We don't like, you know, we can say, well, I appreciate criticisms, which, which is a response that rather than a reaction. A response is not just reacting to the immediate situation, but reflecting. So we can respond to praise and blame or just react to it. When we're praised, we're over the moon, happy, makes our day. We love everybody. When we're criticized, rejected, we we're bitter, resentful, angry, feeling worthless. But what, what is it that's aware of feeling worthless or feel, feeling joyful? What is conscious awareness? 
in the present moment that, you know, whether you interpret it in terms of personal uh, qualities or you respond in with wisdom, with understanding. So this is what mindfulness then aligned with wisdom is enlightenment, seeing things as they are, realizing the, that all conditions are impermanent and not self. There's no condition that has any kind of personal, permanent personal quality, whether you want to call it soul. Do, do each of us have individual souls? You know, you can believe that. That, that my soul is very different from your soul, which, you know, when we talk about soul, it's usually about feeling. So the feelings can be different, you know, because so, the conditions are like we, our appearance. Each person, no matter how conforming we are in terms of what we're saying, what we're wearing, you know, how much conformity can you can you achieve because we're still, you know, on the condition level, very different. And that's just natural, the conditions phenomena are, they're supposed to be uh, that way. Earth, fire, water, and air, you know, they change according to other conditions. They're always dependent upon other conditions. And so when we take refuge in our views and opinions about ourselves, about other people, about the world around us, the society we live in, when we, when we grasp these views, then we're in conflict with those that don't agree with us because views can be seen in, from different perspectives. The world, how we see the world, isn't going to be the same for each one of us. You know, so my view of the world, my personal view of the world, and your personal view of the world can be total, totally opposite. But in terms of unconditional love or metta, views are views, whether they're, you know, my views or your views, views are sankharas, they arise and cease. The world that we project through our conscious through our consciousness that manifests through consciousness the world that we create that we believe in is not going to be the same for everybody even in the sangha so right now just listening to the news this morning about the conflict in Jerusalem just the endless conflict over between Israelis and Palestinians and Christians over a, a wall or a holy place in Jerusalem. You know, that because each one sees things from a different perspective, who's right and who's wrong. You know, this was going on ever since I can remember. Just endless conflicts between religions. You know, Islam sees things in a certain way. You, you're conditioned with Islamic uh, cultural religious conditioning. You see the world through that, those, those conditions. 
So you can expect them to see the world through Israeli perceptions. And the same for, for us all, you know, we each see the world, we create our own worlds to live in, whether it's Amravati or, or a place in, you know, a holy site in Jerusalem. You know, these different views, different positions, cultural conditioning is not going to, you know, you can kind of promote conformity through fear. <clears throat> so very authoritarian systems, you know, create uh, Gestapos and Stasis and, you know, things that are, that create fear, you know, you, you govern, you make everybody afraid so they, they conform to what you tell them to conform to. So conformity, you know, just, it isn't, isn't really the way to handle this problem, is it? Just to making you all afraid believe, to, of me to force you to believe everything I say and grasp it. But what I'm saying is, is reflective rather than demanding conformity or belief. So it's encouraging you to wake up and see for yourself the nature all conditions are impermanent. You know, the Buddha said this, mystics of various religions have alluded to this, all conditions are impermanent. And you don't have to look very far to begin to realize that. Just how your mood changes when you wake up in the morning, to when you're receiving the food for the meal, when you're eating the meal, when you're tired, when you're feeling healthy and vigorous, when you're sick. When people say very frightening things to you or threaten you, you feel you know, you can't help but feel what you're feeling, but you can be aware. And this kind of training that we call meditation here at Amravati is, is this encouragement to, to trust in this awareness because it is a refuge. It's not an ideal. It's not something that depends upon time and place and everything going well or the world falling apart. So trusting in awareness and wisdom, what is, is, is are, can individuals be wise? Is wisdom uh, the prerogative of monks or samanas who practice meditation for years? You know, is it, is it uh, something you attain, something you lack? You know, we can see, you know, we can condemn somebody else, criticize someone else about how they're lacking in wisdom. Or we see somebody else as being very wise. What do we mean by that? And what's our relationship to wisdom? How do you feel about yourself as as being wise. Do you understand what wisdom is? Knowledge is one thing. You know, you acquire a lot of knowledge. You can study philosophy and psychology and science. 
and, and gain all kinds of knowledge and wise sayings from, from the sages of the past, from religious traditions, wisdom of the Buddha, the Dhammapada, the suttas, filled with wisdom teachings. And, and you personally, each one of you, what do, you, do you see yourself as wise or wisdom is something you've got to get? Something you lack because you make mistakes or react badly to particular conditions or situations? You know, then of course, then that's the sense of I should be wise, but I'm not. I'm still deluded. I've been practicing meditation for 10 years now and I'm still deluded. This is, you know, you, you're not really listening to the teaching when, when you believe these perceptions of yourself. These the perceptions might arise in any of us. But whether you believe them or not, to see that they, these perceptions are impermanent. The sense of yourself is being a wise person. There's no such thing as a wise person. There's wisdom that's equally available to all of us. Every moment, every eternal present moment, wisdom is here and now, it's Dhamma, it's reality, available every, all, all the time. So this uh, encouragement for you to, to really be this wise observer, this puto, take your stand, your, your refuge in Buddha, realizing Dhamma, rather than a person trying to get enlightened or become wise through memorizing suttas or wise sayings of great sages. When you try to think about what I'm saying, you get confused because you're still trying to figure it out rather than this sense of relaxed openness in which the thinking habit can cease. You know, when you think about not thinking, you're still thinking. So you can't really just try to become someone that doesn't think. That's impossible. Trying to make yourself into somebody that doesn't have any thoughts is an ideal, but that's not the the way things really operate in this realm. We're thinking creatures, human beings, meaning we have a, a, a thinking ability. So it, it can be a curse because we can create endless problems just through thinking, through creating fears out of fear, out of desire, out of hatred, out of resentment. You know, we can hate other people. We can kill and murder and torture and just through believing in, a, in propaganda, fear and, 
and conditions that we just hold on to and and become taken over by the the our thoughts our beliefs or the fears that we uh, have in in God a reaction of experience so if there is an evil force in the universe the Buddha pointed it out as a vicha or ignorance of Dhamma so ignorance in this sense is not knowing the reality of here and now, timeless. The eternal present moment is all we ever are. No matter what you've done in the past, or what you think you are, or what you want to become as some ideal in the future, Perfection is here and now. Dhamma is here and now. It's not something you're going to get after years of meditation and, and renunciation and hard work. So when we try to perfect ourselves as individuals, you know, we're bound to, you know, we might become better personalities or more disciplined or more accepting of conditions. Uh, but if seen always from the personal sense of trying to attain and, and control and get rid of and resist, we're caught in the trap of samsara. That's what samsara really means. The endless cycles of habit that we bind ourselves to through this ignorant idea that I am a separate individual in, the un in a universe out there. The universe is, is out there. It's the sun. You know, what would happen if the sun suddenly went out, disappeared? We'd all be dead, wouldn't we? We're totally dependent upon the sun. the moon, the stars, where, you know, these forms are very dependent upon other conditions. So, you know, when we, when we, when we look to the universe out there, you know, with a lot of interest now in, in science, modern science, in going to Mars and exploring the universe that we, we perceive through our senses. You know, so we, we're getting, we're worried about the Earth becoming uninhabitable, so we're looking to Mars. <clears throat> but the pictures, the photographs they take of Mars doesn't look <laughs> inhabitable either. <laughs> it looks much worse than anything on the Earth. And the moon doesn't look particularly nice place to live, might be an interesting experience, you know, to tell all your friends you've been to the moon. You put the Dhammajaka flag on the moon, you could get a lot of praise and win a prize maybe. 
But, but it, would you want to go and live on the moon permanently? Or the other possible planets in the universe that we can't see but we imagine? You know, you can imagine galaxies beyond galaxies beyond galaxies. It goes on ad infinitum to our ability to imagine. But what is the reality of here and now? The deathless reality is consciousness here and now. So it's not something that you're going to find at the end of the universal system with all its multitude of galaxies, but awaken here and now at this very present reality by being the puto, the witness to the conditions that you're experiencing individually. So we're not, you know, I'm not saying you should think like I do and believe everything I do because you can't do that. I could kind of, you know, if I were a tyrant and I hadn't practiced Buddhism for a long time, I might kind of threaten you with you go to hell, you'll get reborn in some preta realm or hellish state if you break the precepts or if you misbehave or if you tell a lie or if you, you know, if you disrobe or whatever, I could threaten you with fears about what will happen to you if you don't perfect your life as a samana. And that would be fear conditioning. You're behaving because of fear. Because you're afraid to misbehave, because you get punished. And that's how we're conditioned as individuals. You know, like, just look, look at your parents and, and your schooling, schoolmasters, the societies, that, different societies that we come from, about reward and punishment. You know, it doesn't take you very long when you realize, you know, it's easier to obey mother than no disobeyer. You get rewarded or punished. So, you know, this is, you know, children learn very quickly how to, how to behave, how to get the praise, how to be accepted <clears throat> because of reward and punishment. Now that's, those, are the, those are the conditions that we experience through the conditioned realm, the worlds, the societies that we identify with. But is, can religion be just a form of fear conditioning? You know, if you don't believe in God, you'll go to hell, and that's a, that's a threat, isn't it? And this you can know if, if, you know, if you've been brought up to believe in God, then the, the idea of this people that are like atheists, used to be persecuted, heretics, people that didn't agree with the establishment, with the status quo, were persecuted. 
because they were disrupting the, 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 the society that we depend on in believing what we're told in being conditioned by the, the realities of our family life, our society, our class identity, racial identity. These are all conditioned into us. But consciousness is not conditioned into us. It's not something that, that is culturally uh, definable or uh, describable. But you know you're conscious right now. You know your consciousness is like this. But then you try to think about it, you become confused. What is it exactly like this, you know? What is like this? Uh, I don't quite understand. Uh, I'm conscious, yes, but what is it? Because you, there's a desire to create definitions, to see it as an object, to define it to be able to objectivize it, hold it up. So consciousness is, you know, what, is what we believe in, or is it our thought process? Is it our dependent upon our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, brain? You know, is it something that is, is consciousness dependent upon the brain? And people that are brain dead, are they no, no longer conscious? If you lose your memory, do you lose consciousness? As you get old, your memory's not so good. So you have seen what they euphemistically call senior moments, where you can't remember what you're supposed to. So this is, this is you're still conscious, even in forgetting, even in not remembering. Consciousness doesn't, isn't dependent upon the senses. The senses are dependent upon consciousness. They arise and cease in consciousness. So consciousness, when you let go of the word consciousness, it, it resolves itself in the, in the word Dhamma, the reality here and now. So whether you want to use the word consciousness or let go of it, you didn't have to let go of the word Dhamma because awakened here and now is not a word. Dhamma is merely a symbol for the reality of now. So be patient with yourself, and, and no matter, you know, how many, like doubt is always a result of thinking. You know, people keep asking me the same questions over and over because they, they, they try to figure out what I'm saying, and it ends up as doubt. What is Ajahn Sumedho talking about? 
being trusting in in awareness. And what does he mean by that? How do I do that? How, you know, and this is this is thinking again, isn't it? You think you have to, you know, you're trying to think about what I'm saying rather than trusting in awareness. And we use this phrase, it's like this, benyaniang and tai. It's not that, those words either, but it's just a skillful way of thinking. If you're going to think, Right now, the feeling that you're experiencing is like this, you know, you're not, I'm not trying to describe the feeling of any individual or what, or what I'm feeling, you know, as a quality, but as certainly aware. Like consciousness, you can't perceive it because it's not an object. It's what you are here and now, you know, so you're never, absent in consciousness. Consciousness never, is not personal, is not, doesn't arise and cease dependent upon senses. Or Dhamma is not personal. Or the personal is always about the five khandhas, when we use in the five khandhas the vijnana tat, vijnana khanda, the consciousness through the senses, that's dependent. Senses are dependent upon consciousness. So awareness through seeing, through going out looking at objects is dependent. If you lose consciousness, you can't see. Consciousness itself can't see. It's not a person, it's not an independent uh, being in the universe. It's the reality of here and now. So when, we, when I say the gate, the door to the deathless is open, aparuta desanga matasa taura, you know, that's a, Pali quote now that's very you know that so trust that it's, it's awareness here and now whatever you're thinking, feeling, doubting worrying about, trying to figure out if you're totally caught in doubt and trying to understand what I'm saying you're aware of that that's why you ask questions. But when you ask questions, the result of asking any question is doubt. What do you mean by trusting in awareness? And if you're aware, you know, you, there's no answer to that question. But there's doubt, and it's not knowing. And it's empty, it's silent. You begin to awaken to the silence where all the conditions arise and cease. You know, so it's not, 
it's not something that that uh, that arises and ceases through the senses. So when we talk about in the five khandhas, vinyana khanda, it's about sensory awareness through senses. So that's always of objects. Where of those flowers? Where of the siladars? Where are the monks? You know, so you're looking, you're sending, you know, consciousness through the eyes. Or sounds, smells, taste, touch, conditions that change are in this constant, relentless, inexorable changing condition. But what doesn't change is awareness, mindfulness, consciousness, or Dhamma. So trust in, in awareness, in wisdom, so the wisdom teachings of the Buddha are teachings, you know, they're meant to, they're pointers, they're directing, you know, rather than pointing outward towards objects. Like Vipassana insight meditation is about, you know, it's looking inward, Upanayaka Dhamma. You're not seeking Dhamma or, or enlightenment through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, where you go out through the senses, depending upon the senses, but on awareness here and now, it's like this. So it's extremely simple. Where thoughts, thinking process is very complicated. because it, it goes on endlessly into the best and the worst, the highest, the lowest, what you can imagine, what you can create through imagination. And so when we try to figure out Dhamma with, with the intellect, you know, the Bariyati Dhamma is, is not about giving us the answers by memorizing Pali scriptures, but it's by reflecting on those teachings, pointing to where they're pointing. And it's always here and now. Right now, you're always here, wherever whatever place your body happens to be in. The time is always now. So there's no place to go, no time to, to, to wait for the right time to get enlightened, but to be the awareness itself. And that, that is a relaxed openness. The reality of here and now is open, it's not focused on an object. It's not about refined experience through, through concentration on increasing refined objects but resting in awareness, abiding in awareness, here and now. So I offer this as a reflection. Mm -hmm.